is a blue. You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. Welcome to our In Conversation program. Every week we talk to a sporting personality to find out just what makes them tick. From their early childhood, to their professional career, to their musical tastes. We cover it all. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to this week's special guest. Here on Three Valleys Radio. Good evening. Welcome to another edition of In Conversation. And I'm delighted to say our guest today is one of the top sports commentators in the country. It's Ian Dark. Good evening, Ian, and thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Well, good evening to you as well, uh, Adrian. I'm not quite sure I can live up to that billing you just gave me, but it's very kind of you. No, I think I think you can. <laughs> I think you can. <laughs> the only thing you've done wrong in my books was to commentate on Man United losing, but other than that, sir, you've been excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ian, what I'd like to do is to sort of go back a little bit, um, you know, to, to when you were... I don't know, I presume you went to sort of university or whatever. You know, how did you get into broadcasting in the first place, right back when you were sort of, you know, 17, 18, whatever? Well, I've got no recollection of this, but people tell me that when I was at school, I used to commentate on football matches on the school playing fields. I completely deny that. Um, (laughs) Then I did a bit of hospital radio down at Portsmouth, and I found out at the end of the season that nobody listened to any of it because there was a technical fault. So probably the patients were saved from uh, my early efforts. And then I went away. I was a journalist for a while. I went into local radio, then I went into national radio, and it was there that somebody said to me, you should try doing some commentary. You seem to have quite a good voice for it. So I did about 30 or 40 test commentaries just into a tape machine Mm. um, on various events, none of which were deemed uh, usable and it took a long time before they eventually said okay we think you're up to speed we'll let we'll let you loose so that's kind of a, a very short short version of what happened and um what was your first commentary game then uh, ian or, or boxing match whatever. well my first commentary game was, was that hospital radio one i told you about. i was doing mm. portsmouth I, I was working on the local paper in portsmouth and i did a home game against middlesbrough uh one day because somebody rang the office <coughs> and said look we haven't got anybody to commentate on the game have you got anybody there who, who could come down and even give it a go yeah. so i said all right i will then i sort of in my in uh, so that's the first match i commentated on it uh, down down at fratton park i think uh, middlesbrough won four two um i knew a lot about the pompey players but not so much about the middlesbrough ones but uh yeah somehow you get by yes of course you do of course you do but what about when you sort of when i uh, i loosely say you you've reached a big time you, you got to the bbc and they've done all these test commentaries with you what was your first big one there when they actually let you loose well, uh, the 
funnily enough, uh, the first big event I got to cover, and I'd spent about 18 months there doing things like the third and fourth division roundup on mm. Sports Report, that kind of thing, and the 645 yeah. Sports Desk on, on Radio 2. Um, but Desmond Lynham was the boxing commentator at the time at BBC Radio. He was just going off to television, and I got sent out to cover a Muhammad Ali fight against Larry Holmes, one of the last fights in his career, a very sad one, in Las Vegas. Well, I'd never been to America. I'd never covered boxing. Um, not seriously, anyway. I had an interest in it. So I was out there covering, covering that fight. So... Basically, when you've covered Muhammad Ali, everything in your career from that point on is downhill. <laughs> so, um, I mean, talk me through it. So you, you fly to America. What happens then? You, you know, go, go blow by blow. I mean, do you, you have to find your own way to, right. to, the, to the ring and all the rest of it? Or do they have people there to help you? Well, I was, befriend I was befriended by Colin Hart from The Sun, who was kind of told by the editor who we knew at BBC Radio to sort of hold my hand a bit and show me where the press conferences were and how it was all going to happen so I, I on the very first day I got there I, I was thinking into my head well look I'm not going to really star on this assignment unless I get a, a preview interview of this fight with Muhammad Ali somehow yeah. so I found out where Muhammad Ali was was doing his training I went down there and he was in the middle of skipping some rope in the ring with a lot of people watching him and I sidled up to his trainer Angelo Dundee famous trainer in in boxing and kind of rather naively because they were working said do you think there's some uh, chance that Muhammad had talked to me this week? And he said, he turned around and said, hey, Muhammad, we got a guy here from England. And Ali went into all this jive talk in the ring in front of everybody about how, hey, we're going to talk to the guy from England. Let's talk to the guy from England. It's the only place they know about boxing. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up interviewing Ahmed Ali about three hours after I'd touched down in Las Vegas and sending it back to the BBC. So I'd made this I'd made this great start completely by accident. <laughs> what, what, what sort of a guy anyway, was that, he? That went well. That went well. <clears throat> what sort of a guy was he then, Ian? Oh well, he's. I mean, you know what Ali is, is like. He's, he's exactly as it would seem. I think you know he he was a charmer. He knew how to turn it on in front of the cameras, in front of a microphone. He never met a microphone. He did like he particularly liked the British press uh, and, and British media guys because when he was stripped of the, of the world heavyweight title because of the draft dodging yeah. uh, and it didn't go, wouldn't go to Vietnam but he lost the title the British Boxing Board of Control continued to recognize him as the world heavyweight champion they were only governing body around the world who did so he never forgot that and he never forgot coming over and doing those interviews he did with Parkinson yeah. and Harry Carpenter and, and all that kind of thing so yeah I mean he, he, he was putty in your hands really you I mean I didn't have to do anything you point him in a couple of directions and off he goes doing his performance um so i was just glad that it recorded okay you'll appreciate that adrian yeah and uh, it recorded <laughs> all right and i was managing to, to get it back to london i mean pretty primitive in those days it was it was 1980 at mm. the time so i was sending it back on through something called croc clips which involved you t taking the phone apart and, and putting these clips on little metal prongs inside the phone and plugging it into your tape machine and sending it back through the line. So things have changed quite a lot technically since then. Yeah. Um, I think today, today, today's broadcasters have it a bit easier on that front. <laughs> well, I think you're certainly right on that front. Without doubt, that must have been quite a hairy operation, I should think, especially you know bearing in mind it was Muhammad Ali and you were obviously on a high. Were you starstruck in any way, Ian? 
Um, yes, of course, you, you are. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're in awe. You're realizing you're talking to one of the most famous people in the world. But some kind of broadcasting mechanism, I think, clicks in. You're holding a microphone and, and you, there's adrenaline and you know you've got to get on with it. Yeah. And as I said, it's not a difficult interview to interview Muhammad Ali. It's not like, for instance, interviewing somebody like, you know, going back, Brian Clough or, or Sir Alex Ferguson, who mm. are liable to give you a hard time if you ask them something they might think was a bit stupid. Yeah, yeah, quite. No, I, I think, you know, you, you, uh, we, we've got a, a manager at Yeovil Town who now... You've just got to press the button and he's away. He's brilliant. I mean, you know, he's he's absolute manner from heaven when it comes to recordings. So I can understand yeah. what, what that... Because, you know, if you get the opposite to that, of course, it's extremely difficult because you've got to keep pushing and pushing and they don't really want to answer your questions and, and so on and so on. So, no, I can, I can quite appreciate that. Time for some music now. And Ian's first choice is from the Beatles. And it's called It's Only Love. My oh my, when you sigh, my mind just flies. Butterflies, why am I so shy when I'm beside you? It's only love, and that is all. Why should I feel the way I do? It's only love, and that is all. But it's so hard loving you Is it right that you and I should fight Every night just the sight of you makes nighttime bright Very bright, haven't I the right to make it up, girl? It's only love and that is all Why should I feel the way I do? It's only love and that is all But it's so hard loving you Yes, it's so hard loving you, loving you The Beatles there, of course, and it's only love. What What about Larry Holmes? Did you speak with him as well? <clears throat> yeah, we did. We did. We did interviews with him that week. I mean, he 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 was easier. He wasn't really the star turn. He was he was you know, but the champion by then, and a very good one, an underrated one. Um, so that was a more that was more straightforward. But anyway, that that assignment, which was my sort of first big assignment in BBC National Radio, uh, that went pretty well, and it sort of changed my career there and i started to get given some bigger things to do than i had been up to that point so at this point you know you had a love of football obviously that's quite clear but suddenly you were now being thrown in if you like to the big time boxing i mean did it take a while to uh, you know come to terms with that suddenly you were you were big time in boxing as well as football um, yeah, well, I was doing, I was, to be honest, at that time, I was doing quite a lot of football reporting for Sports Report. Then I started to do some presenting as well. So you have to be a bit of a, an all-rounder all 
Um, at that time, BBC Radio Sport and your younger <laughs> listeners won't recall these names, but the older ones certainly will. Uh, people like Brian Butler, a great wordsmith, and Peter Jones, who was a fantastic performer. They were there. Des Lynham had just left to go and go on in his stellar career in, in TV. There was Jim Rosenthal, Tony Adams, and Mike Ingham, who was a contemporary of mine. Uh, Peter Brackley, sadly, no longer with us. All, all those kind of guys. So the standard was very, very high. and You learned pretty quickly. And really, if you weren't going to be good enough, you were out the door. They were very, very strict. If they asked you to do a 50-second piece and you did 51 seconds you'd hear about it uh, two minutes after you came off the air yeah. so, well if everybody did 51 <clears throat> seconds we'd be overrunning wouldn't we well, so yeah. you, you got slaps on the wrist but if you did something well they told you that too and i like that i like the fact that i got some you got some feedback about the way things were going for you but it was a pretty hard school so uh, i mean how old were you at this 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 stage of your career then ian I was around 30 because I'd, I'd spent quite a long time knocking around in, in local radio, sort of having knocking off uh, a few of the rough edges. Um, there were still some rough edges, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> and they probably still are today. We, you, you've never conquered this business. Uh, it, it's, it's a minefield. So, um, yeah, you know, lo newspapers, local radio. So it was probably 10 years into my career before I, I arrived at Broadcasting House in London. And, and at what stage did you join Sky? Um, so I did about a decade uh, at BBC Radio Sport, and then I, then I kind of started to feel, well, I should give television a, a bit of a crack of the whip and see if I can do that. And I got a bit of interest because I was also doing some athletics commentary as well uh, towards the end of my time at, at BBC Radio, because Alan Parry used to do that, and he left, so they were looking for somebody to do that as well. So I was doubling up doing football reporting, some boxing commentary, and some athletics commentary as well. And I got offered a job on Eurosport um, covering athletics for a whole, whole summer. Yeah. So they offered me a contract to do that. <laughs> then they started to pick up football, so I started to do football commentary as well with them, and some bits of boxing as well. And eventually that sort of morphed into Sky Sports uh, with various mergers that went on. And, you know, I started doing the Monday night football on Sky Sports. Martin Tyler did the Sundays. I did the Mondays. And, uh, you know, they were happy days, really. But that was, that was another tough school as well. More music now. And this time it's Simon and Garfunkel, the only living boy in New York.
Solicitors, the friendly law firm based in the heart of Somerset with offices in Yeovil, Taunton and Bridgewater with a strong ethos of helping those in our community. If in doubt, check it out with Pardos on a free no-obligation call or subscribe to our free podcast, The Friendly Law Podcast. For more information, call 0800 862 or visit pardos.co.uk. Pardos Solicitors, looking after you, your family and your business. At A.J. Wakeley & Sons Family Funeral Directors, we know the importance of compassion and integrity. We also know how unfamiliar decisions can be so difficult at a time of family bereavement. We can provide a steadying influence just when you need it, guiding and helping you make the right decisions to reflect the kind of funeral that your loved one deserves. Visit our website, www.ajwakeley.com, for more information or call Clive Wakeley on 01935 479913. Whether you're a one-man or one-woman band just starting up or a large established business, Chalmers Accountants offer a range of expert services tailor-made to your needs. They have over 100 years' experience of helping businesses of all sizes and provide a one-to-one service with your own personal account manager at one of their three local branches. For expert advice on how to make your business more successful, visit chalmersaccountants.co.uk and book your free initial consultation. support the Oval Town Football Club? Then you must log on to the Green Army Facebook page. He said, now listen my boy, it ain't all joy, but remember this all your life. In my heart I am always your will I be. 
It's the number one YTFC fan site. Find them on Facebook and Twitter. Join up and have your say. The Green Army Facebook page. So right, you're on Monday Night Football. Um, you know, any any memorable games? Any any difficult games? Any problems where you you know uh, you, you dropped a ricket or anything? Well, the very first one, and you remember when Sky Sports started? It's part of the furniture and part of the establishment now. But it wasn't then when Sky got the, the contract to cover the Premier League back in ninety two ninety three season. Everybody was moaning about it and saying, well, why isn't it on ITV or the BBC anymore? Yeah. Uh, this is terrible. We haven't got Sky. Why is it on that? Well, but the reason was, of course, that the Premier League clubs were making an absolute bonanza from selling it for, for a sports rights fee that was unheard of. And that was the start, really, of something big for the Premier League and how they were able to attract all the, the top players because there was that kind of money coming in then from television. But we, as broadcasters, were under a lot of pressure at that time because of everything. everybody was waiting with daggers drawn to pull the coverage apart limb from limb. <laughs> but I think, you know, within a couple of weeks, people realised, well, this coverage is pretty good. There are more cameras, there's great analysis... I don't know, but I, I won't comment about the commentary. Martin Tyler did most of it. I did some of it on the Monday nights. Martin did the, the Sundays. But we were under a lot of pressure. I remember the first game I did with on Monday night was Manchester City at home to Queen's Park Rangers. And the boss of Sky Sports, a guy called David Hill, an Australian, was down in the tunnel, you know, as the players were coming out before the game to do their warm-up. And he turned to me and said, don't mess this up tonight. <laughs> okay, no pressure then. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it, but it started well. But it, that again, you know, we, they would not hesitate to call you up if they didn't like things you'd done in the commentary. Or in those days, because it was a pretty hard sell, they sort of wanted, they didn't really like it if you poured cold water on the game. So I think I did Coventry Tottenham one night, Highfield Road. Remember Coventry's old ground, Highfield Road. Uh, it was a terrible game. It was pouring with rain. There was hardly two passes strung together. And then somebody scored a great goal. And I said something like, uh, that, that was a goal totally out of context with the mind-boggling mediocrity which went before it. <laughs> I like it. I got, afterwards, I got, I got a, a big telling off from the bosses saying, well, if you're going to call it mind-boggling mediocrity, you don't think people are going to just tune over to other channels. And I said, well, I thought it was quite a nice turn of phrase. And by then, people would have realized it. Said, don't do it again. So oh, that's how it was anyway. So um, on we went. I mean, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of an adventure in those days because we were kind of pioneering. The clubs didn't want to play on a Monday night. I rang Howard Wilkinson, who was the Leeds manager one night, and he was on his way to, to Norwich to play on Monday night. And he, said, and he moaned for about half an hour down the phone to me, saying, well, I don't want to give you any information. Why are we having to play on a Monday night? We played Saturday. What are we playing again Monday for? And it was all because twice. So I eventually said to him, well, so you'll be sending back the, the cheque, will you? 
He said, touche, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he always was a, a somewhat, uh, I was going to say, no, I won't say that on air, but but he, he wasn't the most happy person in the world, was he, Hyde Wilkinson? Oh, he was, he, he was fine. I mean, he won the last first division title, didn't he? He was, mm. he was just having, having his moan. Um, you know, the, the, I think the managers have a, have a lot on their plate, don't they? They're very well paid to do it, but it, it's not that healthy in existence, I don't think. More music now, and this time it is uh, Michael Ball, Empty Tables, Empty Chairs from Les Miserables. There's a grief that can't be spoken There's a pain goes on and on Empty chairs at empty tables Now my friends are dead and gone Here they talked of revolution Here it was they lit the flame here they sang about tomorrow And tomorrow never came From the table in the corner They could see a world reborn And they rose with voices ringing And I can hear them Became the last communion From a lonely barricade At dawn <clears throat> Oh my friends, my friends, forgive me But I live and you are gone There's a grief that can't be spoken there's a pain goes on and on Phantom faces at the window Phantom shadows on the floor Empty chairs at empty tables Where my friends will meet no more Oh, my friends, my friends what your sacrifice was for Empty chairs at empty tables Where my friends will sing no Michael Ball there with uh, empty tables and empty chairs from Les Miserables. Now, I've been jetting up on you and I, I've been on to uh, Wikipedia, which is uh, probably the worst thing to go on, really. But nonetheless, they've, they've got a fair bit here. And uh, I see that you, you also had to do Evander Holofield against Mike Tyson. Yeah, well, that was one of the fights we covered. <coughs> um, you know, this, was the, this was the bite of the century fight, yeah, as yeah. it was called. 
uh, where unbelievably, and I kind of had to double-check myself before actually saying it, that Tyson had bitten off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear yeah. uh, in the middle of the fight. And there's a feeling when you're doing something like that, as it happens, you're thinking, crikey, this is going to be front and back page news right across the world, because Tyson was huge uh, uh, at the time. Yeah. Um, massive news. So for him to, to have done that in the middle of a world heavyweight championship fight was was pretty sensational. So, uh, yeah, that that was that was another one that you'd you'd probably put down in your top ten list of of, of happenings if you want that uh, you had a ringside seat for. Yeah, absolutely. What what, what I, I can't remember what happened to the fight at the end of the day. Did they abandon it or what? No, no, no he was disqualified. Oh, Tyson right. was disqualified. Holyfield <coughs> won the fight. Um, He'd already he'd already beaten Tyson before that. I think that the, the bite of the century fight was a rematch, and I think Tyson realised, you know, that Holyfield had his number. Mm. I remember when Holyfield came into the ring, and most opponents Tyson had at that era were beaten before they started. They were intimidated just by the sight of him and his reputation. Holyfield got in the ring singing to himself, and <laughs> and, and, and Tyson looked across, and you could see. He just didn't get that at all. He, and that straight away, I think, changed the, the psychological balance. And Holyfield just, just knew how to, to cope with him. And, uh, and I think that's why, in the end, Tyson did bite his ear. He just resorted to street tactics, anything, to try and disrupt Holyfield's rhythm. Of course, it didn't work because he, he lost the fight by disqualification. Mm-hmm. Now, I see a few years later, though, um, Frank Warren... Uh, took all his fighters to ITV from Sky, I presume. So that freed you up to return to football again. Um, how did you find that? I mean, how did you treat it? You know, were you pleased? Were you sorry to see the boxing go? Um, well, I covered boxing on the radio and television for the best part of you know, 20 years or so. So I'd covered a lot of big fights. I mean, football's always been my first love. I played it since I was a little kid down in Portsmouth. Um so football was what I really wanted to do. The boxing sort of happened for me by, by accident. I grew to love doing it, and I really loved you know, covering the stories, fantastic stories in boxing, and you know, I've always been kind of grateful for, for everything it did to me. But you know, I carried on doing football, even when I wasn't doing it for Sky. I was doing it for like the world feed. Um, so I kept all my books up to date, and I, I was occasionally used by Sky, not as often as I would have wanted when the boxing became big, because there just wasn't time to do both. But yeah, I, I went back on it, um, and it was great to get recalled and, and, and carry on doing that again. So it is quite hard. It's a bit of a plate-spinning exercise to try and cover two sports at once, because to cover them properly, you've got to go to the press conferences and get on the phone and talk to people and get the backstories. Um, and now I'm getting a bit older. I'm quite glad I'm only doing one sport because there would have been too much. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> but I see that um, you, you did uh, Champions League 2005 semi-final between Chelsea and Liverpool. Is that right? Um, I don't know that I did, actually, Adrian. That time, so I think... Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe they've got it wrong <laughs> on here. I don't know. I don't, I don't <coughs> think I did. I don't think I did do that game. You know what? You do so many games in the end, yeah. you start to... Yeah. You start to... Uh, forget exactly which ones that you did do. I tell you some games I did do that were big were like when Barcelona had lost 
foil at Paris Saint-Germain and turned it round amazingly with three goals in the last seven minutes of the second leg on it 6-1. And that was an extraordinary night where me and Steve McManaman, who I was commentating with, ended up, we couldn't get back to the hotel. I mean, it's mayhem outside. Everyone was celebrating. So we just sat down with the Barcelona fans and drank beers until about (laughs) three o'clock in the morning. Um, So that was was one. And then we were at the World Cup in Brazil for ESPN in America, where I've done a bit of work over the last decade. Um, for that game where Germany beat Brazil 7-1 yeah, I remember um, that, in the yeah. semi-final. So, th- I mean, that was extraordinary because watching that game unfold, you're thinking this is quite beyond belief. This is Brazil at home in a World Cup they expect to win, getting turfed out of the competition 7-1 yeah. by Germany, who played out of their skins that day. They were just fantastic. So you put the microphone at the end, down at the end of something like that, and think, well, that's something people are going to remember for in 50, 100 years' time. Absolutely, yeah. Well, tell me, Ian, I, I, I'm going to ring you up now, and I'm going to say, right, Mr. Dark, I'd like you to commentate on, um, uh, let's have a think, England's first game in the European Championships. Now, what, yeah. talk talk me through, what, what, what would you have to do from, you put the phone down, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'll do that for you. No problem. So, so what what happens then? Because it's not just a question of rolling up over there. I can't, you know, I can't believe that. You must have to do a lot of back, you know, homework and what have you research. Yeah, it's a huge amount of research. Funnily, you should mention that, Adrian, because I am covering the England's first game in the European <laughs> Championship for American TV for ESPN, who are covering the whole tournament because the game is, has grown in the United States. That's right. another story. So, yeah, what what you do really is. I mean, the aim is for me to turn up at, at the match with, I sort of have a, 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 a like an A4 size card, a cardboard card, so it won't blow away uh, for, for each team. And all the players with their numbers and then statistical details about their England career caps and goals and, and any any little story surrounding that, that player. I mean, obviously, that's easier for the England team than it is for the Croatian team, but you can rely quite a lot these days on various websites, and obviously there's huge preview editions of magazines to, to preview the Euros, so the information is all, is all out there, but it does take quite a lot of pulling together, and then of course, you know, the biggest job, and people I think forget this about commentary, is 95% of the job is being able to identify the players. If you can't do that, hmm. you're lost. Yeah. Um, so, I will be watching, in fact, I, before I came on to talk to you, I was just watching Croatia play in a friendly, which they're playing against Armenia today as a warm-up for the tournament. So just try to, I mean, I know some of those players like, like Perisic and, and Kramaric, um, you know, Brozovic, who plays in midfield, Luka Modric. They've got some good players, but, you know, some of the others, you don't see an awful lot of. So you're looking to see where they play, what the formation is, and, and then to start reading around and pick up stories around the team and what the talking points are, what the narrative of that game is. And then I'd maybe check back and see, like, how have England done in their first games at other big tournaments? Uh, you know, even when England won the World Cup, they, they started off with a pretty listless draw against Uruguay. Um, so, you know, you, could, you can pick up momentum from the first game, but that, that's all part of things that you would build in I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in when, when you do it try and tell people things they don't know about players or interesting little backstories rather than a whole lot of stats that you didn't really want to know 
Okay, so you've, you've you're all you're all started up as it were. You've got all your your cardboard with all your notice stories and notes on it. <coughs> yeah. What what happens on the day? I mean, for example, let's assume for a minute that England were away. Uh, what what would happen then? I mean, when would you when would you fly out and and you know uh, what would the build up be before the actual kick off? Well, this game's at Wembley, so obviously that that is the game. But, but yeah, in the theoretical situation that it was an away game somewhere, if it's a big championship, you would probably fly out. You know, with a four or five days to go before the championship started, make sure you got your accreditation sorted out. You knew where everything was. Uh, there'd probably be a few production meetings to go to ahead of the tournament. Um, if it was just an ordinary game that wasn't part of a big tournament, you'd pro- probably go out the day before, maybe go to the training and the press conference, which was usually on the evening before the game, just to hear what has to be said. Maybe talk to some of the, the journalists who cover the opposition, you know, find out what the word is about their team, who might be injured, who could be out, um, what people are saying. I, I always try and get hold of the lo- you know, what the local papers are saying, uh, you know, what their projection of the team's going to be. So you just pick up the buzz, really. I, I think it's a bit like, I, I'd say it's akin to, imagine you're a sponge and you just taking a, a lot of water and then when you do the commentary you're kind of squeezing out squeezing out the water but you, you never use everything that you've researched because that would just be too much for everybody you just hope you're you're covering the bases for whatever might happen in the game but quite often things happen in the game that you hadn't thought of at all i mean after all it's sport it's a, it's a 90 minute ad lib covering a covering live sport which makes it quite hard absolutely yeah but i mean you know i presume you you, you get a bit of a buzz because i i mean I, I would liken it to when uh in, in my case yeovertown um played brentford in the playoff final um and you know we rolled up at wembley stadium and up to the press box and all that and i mean uh, you know it was just like being in alice in wonderland we were so we were so just amazed at what was going on and and because although i'd been doing the job for 15 odd years uh this was big this was nothing like i'd ever coped with before so i'm assuming you'd have the same sort of feelings when you rolled up for those sort of games absolutely yeah and i think it, the day that you turn up and you feel blasé about it it's the day to quit yeah really, because i think you should always be learning and that's interesting you mentioned a game like that and i've covered like things like the league one and league two playoff finals and and clubs from non-league in the FA Cup. I'm always very conscious that I shouldn't be kind of blase thinking, well, I cover the Premier League and the World Cup and the Champions League. You've got to realise this is a massive game for the clubs involved. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. And a lot of your audience are going to be people who are following those those clubs. And, and you kind of have to know as much about those clubs or you do your best to, yeah, yeah. as the people who follow them week in week out you can never know all of that of course but you try and, and try and sound informed and now to say the players names and I've always been extremely conscious that every game is a big game for somebody yeah yeah all music now and this time it's Skeeter Davis and the end of the world Cause you don't love me 
Davis there and the end of the world well it's interesting you say that because uh, I'll give you an example of how I mean to us to Yeovil Town that was that was our moment um, you know and the fact that we won as well we, we went down to the uh, to the tunnel entrance so that as the moment the whistle went we could this is me and my colleague uh, we could get on to you know obviously celebrate with the manager and the teams and all the rest of it and the the staff at Wembley Stadium were so uh, awkward, so difficult. And I was saying to them, look, for God's sake, don't you realise this will never happen to this club again? In, in Or if it does, it'll be a miracle. Um, and yeah. they wouldn't let us on the pitch. They uh, Honestly, you, you just wouldn't believe... In the end, I, I was so frustrated. I wrote a real shitty letter to the uh, to the FA about it. To, I just couldn't believe that they would... Um, they would act that way, but they just couldn't understand what it meant to us. Little old Yeovil suddenly were in the championship. I mean, it's just yeah. unheard of, you know. So I, I, that's I'm, sad I'm, to hear. That's sad to hear, Adrian, because they should have realised. And if Wembley's staging big games like playoff finals, they they have to know that that this is the golden moment in the club's history. Oh yeah, and, and I think perhaps us more so than. I mean, maybe Wickham because they they they've been through the same as we have. But there aren't yeah. many teams that are as small as Wickham and as Yeovil that have actually made well, it through, uh, you know, at all. Well, right? Morecambe yesterday, you know, Morecambe went Morecambe, you know, been in League Two or non-League forever mm. and getting promoted to League One yeah. yesterday. I mean, how how big was was that for them? Yeah, exactly. And I wonder yeah. how their how their media team were treated. I I expect probably the same. Well, you know, you hope they weren't, but uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. They, yeah, were. they were. Fair to say, I haven't really got much in common with Ian Dark, but back in the 60s, Ian Dark and I definitely had something in common, and that was the next young lady who's going to perform for us, and it's Francoise Hardy and All Over the World. Must meet and part. 
TV and then you could all see exactly what Ian Dark and I could see and of course we also had another common uh, interest in Marianne Faithful as well in those days but there we go, happy days great memories, Francois Zardy there and all over the world but, but reading here I, I, I thought this was really great this comment that you made, Dark said on the Man in Blazers podcast on grantland.com that one of the worst places to commentate from was Port Vale FC well, I remember going to Port Vale for a game. Um, one of our players, Colin Miles, had been transferred to Port Vale, so I went up to see him as much as anything else. But what a dreary place that ground is. It is awful, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I've got nothing against Port Vale at all. I mean, it's Robbie Williams' team, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. Know, they're, a, they're a famous old club. I've got nothing against them at all. But this night, they were covering Stoke City in an F- FA Cup tie, local derby, of course. Yeah. That, and it was absolutely lashing with rain. And we had to commentate from, not undercover, on the roof of the stand. Oh, God. Um, so we were being absolutely drenched. The players' numbers were obscured because they were falling in the mud. Um, so it was a re- and our microphones were cutting out every five minutes because of the rain and the, and the, the wet wires. It was, it was an extremely dangerous place to be with all that electricity around and, and, and trying to call this game. So uh, it, that was that was a bit of madness. I, I, I've said it before. It was like commentating from the deck of an Atlantic trawler in a storm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it must have been absolutely awful. But um, moving on, then, then Ian. I mean, through your 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 long career, you must have met 
all sorts of different people um you know celebrity people that 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 i would sort of get starstruck over for example um did you ever meet eric Cantona? um only to nod to in a tunnel somewhere no he was he he was kind of he was as he looked really he carried himself with that sort of slight disdain i think particularly for media people I think he had mixed views about the media, particularly after the Kung Fu yeah, business yeah. And, and, and his strange quotes about crawlers and, and, and so on. Um, so, no, I, did, I didn't meet him, but he was a player I admired greatly. I yeah. mean, what charisma? Has, oh, yeah. has there ever been a player who played in the Premier League who had quite the charisma of Eric uh, Cantona? I don't think so. No, I think you're probably right. Um, what about Sir Alex? I presume you've met him a few times. Oh, yeah. Well, Sir Alex, this is interesting because when we first started doing, the, I told you about Sky and when we started out, and the first one of the first Monday night football matches was Manchester United playing down at Southampton. So yeah. I a bit naively rang Manchester United and got through to Sir Alex's secretary, who was playing Alex then, he wasn't Sir Alex back yeah. then, um, and said, would the manager be prepared to sort of, can I have a chat on the phone with him, uh, you know, ahead of, ahead of the game, just to sort of mark my card a little bit? And she said, well, I'll ask him. <laughs> so I thought nothing more of it. And two days later, I got a phone back saying, Sir Alec, um, so, no, she said, the manager will meet you at the Holiday Inn in Eastleigh uh, at 11 o'clock on the morning of the game. He'll have a cup of coffee waiting for you. Um, so if you go down there and he'll look to, to help you with anything you need to know. And I thought, blimey, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So I turned up and he was there. He chatted amiably enough to me for 20 minutes he told me what the team was going to be he gave me lots of little bits and pieces of information for my commentary i thought oh my goodness that's <laughs> this is incredible yeah um but the next time the next time we covered them was about six weeks later at leeds and in the interim sky news had run a piece about called Cantonar's crimes um like his <laughs> red cards that he picked up incidents he'd been involved with which Ferguson did not like at all. So he marched into Ellen Road and saw us wearing Sky Sports jackets and said, you lot can hear all clear off. Get out of here. Nobody's talking to you. I'm not talking to you. None of my players are talking to you. Clear out. You rubbish organisation. <laughs> what the heck was that about? So, I was, I was, And then the editor said, I, was, I rang the editor and I said, he's, he's just gone mad at us. What's that about? He said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. Yeah, he's got, he's got a bee in his bonnet because we ran this piece about Cantona. So you might have told me. <laughs> Brilliant. So that's what it was. That's what it was like a little bit with, with him. He could be, he could be very helpful. I think he was quite helpful to the commentators. He understood we had a job to do. Um, and sometimes he'd even come over and say, well, you know, can I help you with anything? Yeah, yeah. Which not many managers do. So I think he did respect that we had a difficult job to do and would help as best he can. You don't get that so much anymore. It's um, everybody treats their team as a state secret and nobody wants to divulge anything that mm. might, you know, get out on Twitter or somewhere on social media uh, and, and give the opposition an edge. I kind of understand it, but uh, it doesn't make life any easier for us. What's as a, a you know an experienced TV commentator and journalist? What's what's your opinion of social media overall? I mean, do you find it uh, annoying? Do you do you think it's it's a bad thing? Do you think it helps you? Pluses and minuses, to be honest with you, Adrian. There are times it helps you. For instance, teams will come out very quickly on Twitter 
through the, the Twitter feed of the clubs involved because they want to be first with it. So that that can help you out in, in some regards, and or you can bounce things around in social media and, and pick up maybe hints of little stories about about players and so on. But I never, ever, ever look at my Twitter account after I've done a game because it will be full of, of pretty toxic nonsense, yeah, really. tribal nonsense from fans who think you were biased against their team, that you were punching the air when the opposition uh, equalised and so on. When the truth is, you don't really give two hoots about the result of the game. You just hope you called it right. You're just more interested in Portsmouth, are you? Well, Pompey's my, Pompey, I was born in Portsmouth. I grew up there. You know, I followed Portsmouth um, all my life through thick and mostly thin. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, that, I mean, that, 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 that's my team. And I, I know some commentators don't like to divulge their team. I've I, I, I followed Pompey. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the result I, I, I would care about. If I had to commentate them, and I have, I would say and back myself to do a completely neutral commentary mm, because mm. a kind of professionalism kicks in there maybe you'd even overcorrect a little bit yeah what about people like uh jose Mourinho and harry redup have you met i presume you've met them have you yeah well harry's harry yeah i, I know harry a little bit um yeah he, he he's he's pretty great most of the time he'll chat away and speak to you very media friendly. Jose Mourinho, no, not at all, really. I mean, he does his press conferences, and he's an, he's an entertaining performer at, at press conferences. I mean, he's been great copy, hasn't he, for mm. the British media since he arrived. Um, they're they're all little shows in their own right, almost. The Mourinho press conference, he knows what he's doing, but he's not a kind of a manager you could wander up to in the tunnel before the game and check anything with saying, I'm doing the commentary of the game. Could you just clarify, is it going to be Pogba playing here and Fellaini here or the other way around? Uh, he's going to give you very short shrift and he's going to look at you as if you just arrived from Mars. <laughs> so I think, I, I think the continental managers, um, they, don't, they don't get this culture of helping out a commentator, whereas the old school British managers do, like Sam Allardyce and Steve Bruce, yeah. uh, you know, they'll, they'll pick up the phone to you. They might even ring you back. I mean, one of the, one of the managers um, even sends me the team information in a, in a little text a couple of hours before the game. So, um, you know, you, some, of you, some of you've got great contacts with, and, and sometimes now... Often the team is announced. We used to go down in the tunnel and have a cup of tea with the managers before a game. You could still do that in the lower divisions. You can't really do it in the Premier League anymore because there's eight commentators covering the game for various outlets. Uh, so it's no big deal that the game's on TV anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, for John Watson and Barry Davis, 40 years, 30, 40 years ago, it was the only game in town. Uh, it was the only game on TV. They'd invite you to the training, and, and it was a lot easier to get to know everybody. These days, the Premier League clubs really operate behind a pretty high wall, uh, and, and there's a big PR operation, really, to, well, help you sometimes, but also fend you off. Yeah. But I'll, I'll tell you a little story about Jose Mourinho. Um, you, you're probably aware that Yeovil were, were lucky enough to get drawn against Man United twice in the space of about three years. Uh, now, I've, I've followed Man United since 1957, so it's, it's my absolute life, they are. And uh, the first time, Louis van Gaal was in charge. 
and uh, I was doing my job as I did on a, a match day, you know, and I walked down to the pitch and, and Louis van Gaal said, ah, oh, he said, you must be the red. So I looked at him a bit cross-eyed. I said, you know, how did you know that? <laughs> oh, I said, I know, I know, I know these things. So anyway, that, that was that. And he was very, he was charming. He was he was really, really nice. Anyway, the, the second time, obviously, Jose Mourinho was in charge of Man United. Now, I was in charge of the press tent that day. I had to look after that and keep everything going, you know, the way it should do. And uh, I got a shirt ready to get it signed because obviously I wanted the opportunity to get him to sign a shirt. And this bloke came in absolutely bald head built like a brick outhouse and he looks at me and he sees the pen and the shirt in my hand and he says are you thinking of getting that signed so i said well yeah that did cross my mind why he said don't and the look on his face as though he would have chopped my head off if i would even attempted to speak to jose which i thought was bad really i thought i thought he could have been a little bit more magnanimous in situations like that but clearly they Absolutely. they stopped it yeah. they stopped it before it even got to that point you know you were threatened and if you even had the audacity to try and get around that you know you were in big trouble you know but it's pity really. but yeah but if you, if you had to um if you had to organize a dinner party ian right <laughs> And uh, you you could invent uh, invent uh, what's what I'm trying to look, invite is what I'm trying to find. You could invite five people to this uh, dead or alive. Would you invite? Oh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Uh, Brian Clough. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm talking off the top of my head now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you're doing well. There's three. Now the other two might be a bit harder. Let's let's have a think. Um, maybe Jeff Boycott. Yeah. Because he'd stir it up, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah. And I do love cricket as well, so that he, there'd, be a lot, there'd be a lot of lively cricket chat. And Brian Clough loved cricket as well. I've only got one to go, haven't I? Yeah. I mean, this is the top of my hat, so head. So um, we've, got to, we've got to have a lady there, haven't we, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's say, let's go to, let's say Chris Everett, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever meet her then? No, no, I didn't. I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that comes to Francois D as well, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, well, yeah. She was, uh, yeah, she, I, she was so great, so graceful, brilliant, brilliant yeah. player, of course. And I mean, I, I don't. I'm not a great tennis fan, but um, I enjoyed watching her, and I enjoyed watching uh, Federer. I mean, Federer was like, you know. Yeah. Rembrandt with a racket, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he still he probably still is when he gets fit again. Well, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But um, but you know, to, to bring this to an end, Ian, you've been you've been absolutely wonderful. But um, given that uh, you've done, I don't know, twenty, thirty, is it as much as forty years? I'm not sure. You tell me. Oh well, since I went first went into broadcasting, is yes, yeah, forty years or so, something like that. Yeah. What would you say? This is a unfair to hit you with this one, but I'm going to do it anyway because you're you're experienced enough to cope. I know you are. What would you say that 40 years is the most significant event uh, in your in your career that you've had? Right. Well, the the best fight I ever covered was Marvin Hagler against Tommy Hearns in 1985. That was just an electrifying experience. Probably the best World Cup game I ever covered was that one I mentioned between Germany and Brazil, just because it was such a sensational thing that happened. But probably, if I had to say one event that really became a massive, massive story, it was the Ben Johnson race at the 1988 Olympic Games, the 100-meter final, which they called the dirtiest race in history. Yeah. I mean, Johnson 
losing the gold medal and being done for drugs two days afterwards that was like a story that literally did you know rock the world didn't it yeah, oh, um, yeah, yeah. for weeks afterwards the, the the ramifications of that were, were, were huge so i was commentating on that race in my brief career covering athletics i did that race for bbc radio and you mentioned about getting nervous sometimes that was about as nervous as i felt before doing a commentary because i thought you got 10 seconds and this has got to be right this is ben johnson against carl lewis this is the blue ribbon story of the whole olympics uh, this is the race so don't get this wrong so yeah that is pressure um but of course it turned into something even bigger than that in history so yeah that's that that would pro- that would probably go down uh, as the event the biggest storyline attached to it that i covered through yeah. the years so yeah. if you give me another 10 minutes i'll probably think of another one <laughs> <laughs> you know he reminded me of a lot i i did an interview with uh, richard pittman um yeah and you should hear richard pittman going on about the grand nationals and stuff he's so entertaining he's unbelievable oh uh, yeah he's always got he's a, he's a guy with a million stories yeah. great broadcaster richard i mean he's it's a pity we don't still still hear him you know some some broadcasters grow out the top of you know they get they get um they don't get another contract somebody decides over a glass of wine one summer that we don't need to hear them anymore and you pine yeah. for them in a way yeah you know there are yeah. a lot of good broadcasts that have been burnt up you know i miss i quite like uh, watching the horse racing and i used to like listening to john frankham yeah but, yes yeah absolutely you know, I think when uh, when channel four lost the racing he didn't want to carry on and work for anybody else when mm. it changed sides you know we're always in that boat a little bit um, in television because you could be working for a company who lose the rights to yeah. cover an event and then you're you're left really without a without a car to drive in a way well uh, we've got um colin brown who used to ride desert orchid he, he comes on my racing show every every week and uh, you know yeah, he's, him well yeah he, he's got a, a, you know he's got loads of tales to tell that's for sure and, and it, i mean i i horse race is my second love and uh I've got a, a chat lined up tomorrow actually with with Mick Shannon because he sort of football. Oh, well, that's fantastic! Yeah. Football. I used to own a sixth of a horse. I used to own a sixth of a racehorse called Protagonist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it won. It won the last race at Kempton Park one one day on on a Boxing Day. You know, with the big crowd for the King George. Yeah. It yeah. Was, so it won the last race on the card that day. So that was that was that was my horse race highlight. But yeah, no, it's great sport, and yeah, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Desi for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody does, don't they? I, it was I, the Eric Cantona of horse racing. Well, horse yeah. with the most charisma. Yeah, definitely. I I paid three hundred quid uh, when I, one stupid day we, we he did a, a stage show. Uh, you know, an hour with Eric Cantona down at Bournemouth, and um, right. my son and I went down. And of course, you could have your photograph taken, couldn't you? One hundred and fifty mm. quid each, it was. Of course, Joe, oh, Ma- Joe Muggins here said, "Yeah, well, we better do it. We might never meet Eric Cantona again." So, wow. so we did. But uh, don't tell my wife. I don't think she'll that listen to this. That sounds a bit like a rip-off, if I'm honest, Adrian. I think it probably <laughs> was, you know, Ian. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but on the other hand, it's a picture of me shaking hands with Eric Cantona. So. You know, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, you won't you, you you won't remember what you paid for it. No, uh, you just told me, so you actually do. Yeah, no, I do, <laughs> but I do, but there you go. 
But look, no, Ian, I know what you mean. Ian, you have been an absolute star. This has been such an enjoyment. I don't want it to end, but uh, you're a busy man and I can't keep you any longer on this. But thank you ever so much for joining us. It's really, really great. And uh, I will drop you a line and let you know when it's going to be broadcast. It'll be within the next two to three weeks. And um, hopefully you'll have a listen and enjoy yourself. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, Adrian. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, Ian, you're a star. Thank you ever so much. This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a blue. And you've been listening to the In Conversation programme with A.D. Hopper. No space to win in this town. Make sure you join us every week here on Three Valleys Radio. And the reason that you had to care, the traffic is Yeah.